Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Recorded on March 22, 2014 at the National Gallery of Art, this symposium explores the art and legacy of Domenicos Theotokopoulos, known as El Greco. The 400th anniversary of the artist is being celebrated by exhibitions and programming throughout 2014. Born on the Greek island of Crete, El Greco spent the majority of his adult life in Toledo, Spain, and became known as the Greek from Toledo. An international panel of El Greco scholars provides an in-depth study of the artist's career, focusing on his early years in Greece and Italy, and his renowned work completed in Toledo. The gallery is also presenting an exhibition titled El Greco, a 400th Anniversary Celebration from Washington Area Collections, on view from November 2, 2014 through February 16, 2015. This program was coordinated with and supported by Spain Arts and Culture. The first lecture was given by John Go Park, an El Poulet Curatorial Fellow, the Frick Collection. Since Ellis K. Waterhouse's pioneering work on El Greco's Italian period, published in 1930, the artist's sojourn in Italy from 1567 to 76 has been considered a formative period for the painter. It was during this time that he began his transformation from an established master of Byzantine icons into a talented painter who successfully absorbed the idiom of the Italian Renaissance. Among his works of this period, portraits most clearly demonstrate his understanding of the Venetian manner of the 16th century, although all of the surviving portraits were painted in Rome after after he left Venice in 1570. The three portraits that are universally accepted as El Greco's work during this period characterize the painter's remarkable achievement of lifelikeness through painterly brushwork. Not only the faithful rendering of the sitter's appearance, but also the artistic invention he exercised in these portraits indicate that El Greco had a special interest in the art of portraiture. What could have been the reason for his enthusiasm for this conservative genre? El Greco's motivation to concentrate on portraiture appears to have been twofold. The first was his desire to secure patronage and elevate his social status, and the second was to experiment and express his ideas on painting. In today's talk, I will explore the significance of portraiture in El Greco's Roman years by approaching the issue from these aspects. In so doing, I wish to illuminate the importance of portraiture in El Greco's career and the crucial role of his experience in Rome in his formation as an ambitious portraitist. As an aspiring artist in search of secure patronage, it was vital for El Greco to be equipped with excellent skills in portrait painting. The 16th century was a time when portraiture gained much popularity in Western Europe. Portraitists enjoyed growing fame and esteem. More specifically, the growth of the portrait collections in prominent households in Italy provided painters with opportunities to gain access to powerful people. Portraits were always in need at the courts, and a well-painted likeness was one of the effective means that the painter could use to win the favor of a prospective patron and to become a court painter. This practical function of portraits was undoubtedly acknowledged by painters, as can be seen in the recommendation that the miniature painter Giulio Clovio wrote to Cardinal Alessandro Farnese on November 16, 1570. In his letter, 
Clovio introduced El Greco as a pupil of Titian and asked the cardinal to offer him temporary lodging. What draws our attention here is that El Greco is said to have painted a marvelous self-portrait that astonished the painters in Rome. Unfortunately, this painting did not survive, nor is there any record of it. Clearly, however, the miniaturist intended to recommend El Greco by emphasizing his ability as a portraitist who worked in the matter of the great Venetian master. With the cardinal's per permission gained through Clovio, El Greco was granted living quarters at the Palazzo Farnese. Clovio's claim about El Greco's mastery of portraiture is confirmed by his own portrait executed around 1570 by the Cretan painter. In this work, El Greco demonstrates his remarkable ability to depict psychologically penetrating likenesses based on exacting naturalism. The weathered face of the miniaturist in his 70s is unflattering. The painter did not attempt to hide the sitter's wrinkles, uneven complexion, or deeply set eyes, but in, instead seems to have emphasized them, transcribing his appearance as faithfully as possible. In the composition of the portrait of Giulio Clovio, one finds elements common, commonly used in Venetian portraits of the 16th century the triangular rendering of the sitter's upper torso against a dark neutral background, and the motif, motif of the window with a view of a landscape testify his debt to Venetian masters such as Titian, Tintoretto, and Jacopo Bassano. More specifically, it has been suggested that El Greco took certain elements, such as the strong light on Clovio's face and his pose holding his work in one hand and pointing, it, pointing at it with the other. Titian's portrait of Giulio Romano, which is, you see on the right, and it was painted in uh, circa 1536. It was natural for El Greco to employ the Venetian style for his portrait. Not only was it the manner in which he was trained, but also it would have seemed to guarantee success at the Farnese court in Rome, where he saw the cardinal's portrait collection and witnessed the preference given to the works painted by Titian. El Greco's access to the collection undoubtedly contributed to his ambition to excel in portrait painting. Cardinal Alessandro Farnese kept an extensive collection of portraits, although he does not seem to have been particularly interested in easel painting compared to other forms of decoration, such as fresco painting. Alessandro's portrait collection generally cons consisted of contemporary likenesses of his family members. On your left, you see uh, a member of the Farnese family, Ranuccio Farnese, uh, in his youth, and those of other ruling families and those of various popes. Unlike the renowned systematic collection of uomini illustri images which belonged to Paolo Giovio uh, during that time, Alessandro's was a result of the desire to perpetuate his, the memory of his family as well as a reflection of the contemporary culture of exchanging portraits between princely courts as a diplomatic means. Alessandro also had his own portraits painted at least four times by Innocenzo da Imola and the Titian's workshop which you see on the right uh, Girolamo Muziano, and Scipione Puzzone. 
Among the portrait painters, Titian was by far the most favored by all of the members of the Farnese family. One of the mo motivations for them to commission portraits from the Venetian master was to emulate the practice in the household of Emperor Charles V. The first of the Venetian master's portrait commission was for the portrait of Ranuccio Farnese in 1542, which you see on the left, followed by Paul the portrait of Paul III without cap, uh, painted in 1543, when Titian went to the papal court at Busseto. El Greco's interest in portraiture was definitely reinforced with his first-hand observation of Titian's portraits in the Farnese collection. At the same time, he would have fully recognized the reward of portraying men of, of eminent status, a model which had been set by Titian. In the portrait of Giulio Clovio, however, El Greco does not limit himself to applying the lessons he learned from the Venetian masters. A closer examination of the painting demonstrates that the painter exercises his artistic invention to make a visual statement of his own beyond creating a faithful copy of the sitter's appearance. Giulio Clovio is looking out at the viewer and points his right hand to a book of miniatures directing the viewer's attention. Oh. The illustrations on the folios, the creation on the left, and the holy family on the right indicate that the book is the Farnese Book of Hours, now kept at the Morgan Library in New York. Uh, which was painted by Clovio for Cardinal Farnese in 1546. In order to emphasize the manuscript in the picture, El Greco uses a rectangular canvas with its width greater than its height instead of a vertically long canvas generally used in portraiture. Consequently, not only the sitter, but also his manuscript draws attention. The Farnese Hours is not a mere attribute of El Greco, uh, attribute of Clovio, but a creation that merits the viewer's gaze. At the same time, Clovio's finger nearly touches the manuscript, which recalls the finger of God about to give life to his most valued creation in Michelangelo's creation of Adam. At this point, we, uh, it's notable to remember that uh, Giulio Clovio was called the little Michelangelo in Vasari's lives. It is telling that the opening page of the Farnese Hours shows the creation of the sun and the moon. The view of a landscape throughout the window, placed directly above the manuscript, reminds God's creation of nature and urges the viewer to compare it to the artist's work. It is also worth mentioning that the composition of the portrait is similar to the images of evangelists included in Clovio's illustrations for Grimani Evangelistery on folios 133 verso, which you see on the left, and 134 recto. Clovio's treatment of the evangelist holding his work in a room with the window is followed by El Greco, except 
that the cretin painter made adjustments required of a portrait. He adjusted the sitter's gaze toward the viewer and made use of the pointing finger to draw attention to the sitter's great work. He also balanced the composition by placing the opening on the other side of the head. Thus, the portrait of Giulio Clovio can be read as a record statement of his belief in the nobility of painting as comparable to God's creation, as well as an expression of homage to his friend's famous work, which he praises to be as significant as the Gospels. Another indication of the significance that Greco attached to portraiture is evident in his religious work, Christ Driving the Money Changers from the Temple, now in the Minneapolis Institute of Fine Arts. On the lower right corner of the painting, the painter added a strip of canvas that features four masters of Italian Renaissance art, Titian, Michelangelo, Giulio Clovio, and Raphael. As noted by many scholars, it is a visual footnote honoring the artist who inspired the Cretan painter. It is remarkable here that El Greco chose to substitute the art of each painter with individual portraits as if the essence of an artist is best represented through his likeness. Although El Greco was not granted opportunity to execute independent portraits for the Farnese, he attempted to win favor from the family by inserting a likeness of one of its members in his religious composition. In the Christ Healing the Blind, painted circa 1572, the figure of a young man standing in the far left appears to be a portrait. It has been suggested that the head behind the half-naked man, so this person, is also may also represent a contemporary likeness, but it is difficult to ascertain. The young man on the far left is the only figure, in my, in my view, um, is probably a, a portrait of a contemporary person because he's the only figure who looks out at the viewer and is dressed in contemporary attire with a rough collar. The most likely candidate for this figure is Alessandro Farnese, not the cardinal, but his nephew, and who becomes uh, the Duke of Parma, um, and was also uh, famous for his military career. A comparison with the no known likenesses of the young Alessandro, such as what the ones by Girolamo Mazzola Bedoli and Antonius Moore, allows us to identify the figure in the El Greco painting as the future duke. Furthermore, the young nobleman's gorget, which is the neck defense uh, of the armor, suggests his military career, which included his participation in the Battle of Lepanto, which happened in 1571. The history of this, the painting is not traceable before its appearance in the inventories of the Palazzo Farnese in 1644 and 53, but it is possible that the painting was intended as a gift from El Greco to a member of the Farnese household. El Greco was never officially hired by Cardinal Farnese, but he must have attracted Fulvio Ursini, who served as the Cardinal's librarian and art advisor. In fact, the portrait of Giulio Clovio originally belonged to the collection of Orsini, 
probably given to him by Clovio. The inventory of the librarian's painting collection dated January 31, 1600, also includes El Greco's small-scale roundels of Cardinal Farnese, Ranuccio Farnese, Cardinal Bessarion, and Pope Marcellus II, along with a portrait of a young man in a red cap. Those are all lost. The portrait of a scholar is another example that testifi testifies his interactions with the circle of Ful Fulvio Orsini, although the exact identity of the sitter has been much debated without a conclusion. It had been considered a self-portrait of Tintoretto before the discovery of El Greco's signature in 1898. Since the confirmation of, the, of authorship, the sitter has been identified with Giovanni Battista Porta, Andrea Palladio, or a member of Orsini's circle of Reterati. What is certain about this portrait is that it seems to have been inspired by Titian's portrait of Pietro Bembo, which is here at the National Gallery. Uh, the representation of the three-quarter length figure against the dark background, as well as the gesture of the sitter's right hand, follow Titian's model. In addition to Agreco's exposure to the paintings by the master in Venice, the environment at the Palazzo Farnese would have had a more direct connection to the execution of the painting, which is, for, which is explained by Fulvio Orsini's collection, uh, which included a copy of Titian's portrait of Pietro Bembo, and it is almost certain that the Cretan painter had chances to study it closely. El Greco worked for the circle of the Cardinal for about a year and a half before being dismissed for unknown reasons. After Agreco fell out of Cardinal Farnese's favor in 1572, he had to find other ways to earn a living in the Eternal City. While searching for opportunities to secure patronage, he enrolled in the Compagna di San Luca, which is a precursor to the Accademia di San Luca, the painter's guild in Rome, because he was required to become a member of the guild in order to work as an independent artist. Given these circumstances, it is likely that El Greco's Vincenzo Anastasi now at the Frick Collection, painted around 1575, represents an effort to draw the attention of powerful men. The identity of the sitter in the work is known by an old inscription on a pedestal that is no longer visible in the painting. During the treatment of the work in between 15, uh, 1958 and 59, it was painted out as it was believed to be an addition by another hand, but still of the 16th century. Nonetheless, the contemporary dating of the inscription suggests that the identity of the sitter is secure. Born to a noble family in Perugia around 1531, Vincenzo Anastasi became a Knight of Malta on February 13, 1563. He was most famous for his contribution to the victory during the Siege of Malta against the Ottoman Turks in 1565. He was also known as an expert in fortifications, and his life was included in biographies of famous people from Perugia, written by Picor Passo or Leone Pascoli. According to Acarvo records in Perugia and Malta, he was in Italy, away from the island of Malta from 1571 
to 1579. Anastasi seems to have spent some time in Rome as he received the honor of being appointed Sergeant Major of the Castel Sant'Angelo in May 1575. It was probably on this occasion that El Greco painted his portrait. As a middle-ranking nobleman, Anastasi would not have appeared to be a promising patron. Moreover, he does not seem to have been particularly interested in paintings and therefore would have been unlikely to commission further works. The significance of Anastasi was, in fact, his connection with a very eminent personage, Jacopo Boncompagni, commander of the papal troops. Boncompagni was the natural son of Pope Gregory XIII, born in Bologna in 1548, Jacopo was legitimized by his father almost immediately and was educated by the Jesuits. He then moved to Rome in March 1572 when his father was elected pope and assumed the offices of the governor of Castel Sant'Angelo and also the commander of the Pontifical Armed Forces in the same year. In 1575, Jacopo Boncompagni named Anastasi the sergeant major of the Castel Sant'Angelo. The connection between the two men may well have motivated El Greco to paint the portrait of Anastasi. It could be expected that El Greco's portrait would be shown to Boncompagni and possibly even to Pope Gregory XIII. Furthermore, Boncompagni had been known to be a great patron of the arts. He supported the poet Torquato Tasso, the philosopher Francesco Patrizzi, and the composer Pierluigi Palestrina. Leading architects of the time also received Boncompagni's encouragement. Andrea Palladio and Jacopo Vignola dedicated their literary works to him. Seen in this light, the portrait of Anastasi was probably viewed as a means for El Greco to promote himself to personages of higher rank than the sitter. For his portrayal of Anastasi, El Greco would have looked to examples of military portraits not only from Venice, but also from Rome and central Italy. The most recent successful likeness of this type available to El Greco most likely was Scipione Puzzone's portrait of Jacopo Boncompagni, which was executed in 1574, only about a year before El Greco painted Vincenzo Anastasi. It would have been almost impossible for El Greco to be unaware of this splendid likeness of Boncompagni, which was probably commissioned when Jacopo was sent on a diplomatic mission to Ferrara. The three-quarter length portrait of Boncompagni communicates the young sitter's high status by the detailed depiction of the opulent armor, the carefully groomed face, and the elegant hands. In his left hand, the sitter holds a wooden letter case, which probably denotes his diplomatic mission. His right hand grasps a folded piece of paper on which his name and the painter's signature are inscribed. The high esteem that Pulzone enjoyed as the most sought-after portrait painter in Rome of the time would have also stimulated El Greco's ambitions. Moreover, El Greco would have known Puzzone personally through the Compagna di San Luca, 
where the latter served as a consul in 1573 and overseer of the accounts in 1575. Almost an exact contemporary of El Greco's, Scipione Puzzone was born in Gaeta between 1540 and 1542. By the mid-1560s, he was in Rome, first documented as a member of the Painters Guild on July 14, 1567. There he had the opportunity to execute portraits and religious paintings commissioned by the Roman patrician families. Among the sitters whom he portrayed were dignitaries of the highest rank, such as Pope Pius V, Pope Gregory XIII, Cardinal Antoine Perno de Granville, and Cardinal Alessandro Farnese. The painter's status in the Roman art, in the Roman art world advanced greatly in the 1570s. By the mid-1570s, Pulzone was acknowledged as the leading portraitist in Rome. The correspondence between Hortensio Syriac and Wilhelm, Wilhelm V, Duke of Bavaria, offers a glimpse into Pulzone's fame. In a letter of February 11, 1576, Syriac reports that he had contacted the most famous portrait painter, Scipione Pulzone, to commission a series of portraits for the Duke. But in a later report, he mentions that Pulzone declined the commission because he was too busy painting works for Marcantonio Colonna, Jacopo Boncompagni, and Cardinal Fernandino Ferdinando de Medici. Puzzone's contemporary, Raffaello Borghini, also testifies to the artist's portraits, painting skills, and popularity. And I quote, Scipione Puzzone is so excellent in making portraits from life that they seem alive. Hence, it was required of him to portray all the important gentlemen of Rome and all the beautiful ladies, unquote. That he was considered the best portrait painter is evident in Cardinal Granville's comment. In a letter of 1583, the Spanish ambassador to Rome quotes the cardinal, who was also portrayed by Puzzone in 1576, to recommend painters to decorate El Escorial. And I quote, Granville praises the diseño of Geronimo Muziano, the color of Marcello Venusti, and the portrait of Scipione of Gaeta, unquote. Furthermore, the painter enjoyed personal relationship with powerful patrons. In 1574, when his portrait was painted, Jacopo Boncompagni became the godfather of Pulzone's first son, Giacomo, apparently named after his patron. Francesca Colonna Orsini, a member of the two prominent noble families in Rome, was the godmother of the painter's son. Pulzone's status would have provided a success model for El Greco, and his portrait of Boncompagni most likely offered the Cretan painter a reference for his por first portrait of a sitter in armor. Nonetheless, the El Greco, El Greco took a radically different approach in order to display his artistry. In fact, representing Anastasi in armor would have given the artist an, ex an excellent opportunity for this. Contrary to previous studies that assume this work as a literal transcription of reality, 
El Greco's portrait shows that the painter went beyond the faithful description of the symbolic objects using invention in depicting the sitter. The most significant example is the drastic abbreviations of the details in Anastasi's armor. A comparison with the infantry armor at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York demonstrates that the harness in El Greco's painting conspicuously lacks the ornamental bands on the breastplate. In accordance with the spiral decoration on the left pauldron, pauldron is the left, this part, the breastplate should have the diagonal bands that extend from top to bottom, as you see in the real armor. And you can see none of them there. The bands that fan out from the earpiece on the real burgonet, which is the helmet, are absent as well. Considering the symbolic significance attached to armor as a symbol of wealth and status, it is highly unusual not to depict the armor in full detail. Anastasi's garniture features instead the blaze of light reflected on the metal surface. Depiction of armor had posed a constant challenge for the Renaissance painter. In his own biography, in his lives, Vasari writes of his difficulty in representing the polish of armor when painting his portrait of Alessandro de' Medici in 1534. Consulted by the young Vasari, the elderly Pontormo advises him not to view his painting alongside a real set of armor because his work will always look like a painting compared to the real object. Because it was considered arduous to transcribe the glittering armor on canvas, the artist's skill in faithfully imitating it drew praise. In his letter to Alfonso Davalos, Pietro Aretino expresses his admiration for Titian's masterful depiction of the metallic luster that is so close to nature that it dazzles and blinds the spectator. In this context, tactile representation of the cool surface of the steel armor would have seemed a great opportunity for El Greco to display his abilities as a painter. By emphasizing the brilliant streaks of light bouncing off the breastplate, pauldrons, and rembrances, the painter enhances the effect of the armor, even at the cost of faithful transcription of the decorative motives. El Greco's artistic experiments in the portrait of Anastasi are not limited to the depiction of armor, but can also be found in the representation of the dark crimson curtain behind the figure's upper body. Its unusual oval shape is at odds with the drapery that is typically drawn to one side in Italian Renaissance portraits. The painter appears to have taken careful measures to render the casual form of the curtain, which functions as an ingenious device to emphasize the most important elements in the portrait, that is, the sitter's armor and his face. As can be seen in the Pentimento, El Greco moved the contour of the right edge of the drape upward in order to align it close, closer to the sitter's left forearm. 
Also, the X-radiograph shows that there was a wavy line between the figure's calves, let's see here, which might indicate that the curtain was originally intended to hang lower. By shortening its length, El Greco offers a tighter focus on the upper body of the sitter. This unconventional background not only sets off the face, rendered in fine, finer brush strokes, but also encourages the viewer to compare the texture of the fabric with the metal in its work. Creating the illusion of different materials was of, was of primary concern in Renaissance theory on the use of color. As Ludovico Dolce argued in his Dialogo della Pittura, first published in Venice in 1557, the main problem of coloring re resides then in the imitation of flesh and involves diversifying the tones and achieving softness. Next, one needs to know how to imitate the color of draperies, silk, gold, and every kind of material so well that hardness or softness seems to be communicated to the greater or lesser degree which suits the quality of the material. One should know how to simulate the glint of armor. I, unquote. One of the prime examples of this can be found in Titian's portrait of Francesco Maria della Rovere, where the artist depicts the reflections of the crimson velvet on the helmet and the breastplate. Titian boasts his virtuosity in depicting different materials by representing the polished armor as both an object that has its own tactile quality and a surface that reflects the texture of the adjacent cloth. Taking into account the close affinity El Greco had with Venetian painters, the view shared by Aretino and Dolce would certainly have resonated with him. The absence of the sitter's codpiece, a standard component of men's attire of the time, is also an unconventional element that El Greco em employed. It can be understood in conjunction with the changes made in the contours of the sitter's thighs. X-radiograph confirms that Anastasi's stockings were longer. It is likely that the painter, painter's original design included shorter breeches like Boncompagni's in, in Puzzone's portrait. Considering the soft texture, texture of velvet and the loose fit of Anastasi's breeches, it is possible that the upper part is obscuring the subtle protrusion of the codpiece. The slight shading in the area also hints at its presence under the fabric. The painter's intention was perhaps to add a touch of spontaneity to the rigid formality of the full-length portrait. The changes that El Greco made for his portrait of Anastasi demonstrate his effort to differentiate his work from the established convention of the military portrait. Exercising his artistic invention, the painter shows his unique approach to achieving a sense of like lifelikeness quite distinct from that of Polzone's meticulously executed portrait. El Greco's strategy was to emphasize Anastasi's military career and his personal traits rather than his status. The sunburned face and threads of gray hair rendered with short, powerful brush strokes testify to his brilliant career in the battlefield 
rather than idealize his features to mask him with courtly elegance. The white hose accentuate his muscular calves <clears throat> that befit an experienced infantry officer. Anastasi's pose with his, with his arms akimbo also conveys his character. According to Spicer, the pose in the Renaissance portraits typically reflects the self-confidence and composure of a, military, a male military figure. At the same time, the pose could also be interpreted as a sign of pride and ostentation. In the case of El Greco's Vincenzo Anastagi, the sense of self-possession is enhanced by the placement of the sitter's arms, which create a closed circular form around his torso. The X-radiograph shows that the painter altered the position of the sitter's left arm so, so that the elbow thrusts out, which animates his body with muscular tension. In the 16th century, this gesture becomes associated with aggressive masculine virtues since the hand would be placed near a sword or a baton. Titian's Philip II, painted in 1550, exemplifies an earlier type of this gesture in a military portrait. The Spanish monarch grips the top of his scabbard as if to show his readiness to show to draw the rapier, which reinforces the martial prowess of the sitter. This hand gesture and pose were popular, as can be witnessed in later portraits. Pulzone's portrait of Marcantonio II uh, Colonna almost exactly repeats the posture of the Philip II in Titian's likeness, except that his hand rests on the hilt rather than on the scabbard. It is also this formula that El Greco had in mind when he first set his brush to execute, execute the work. The pentimento of the scabbard, which you see here, indicates that the artist originally painted the rapier to point away from the sitter's body. The position of Anastasi's left hand also suggests that it had been intended to be placed on the hilt of the sword. As we see in the current version of the portrait, Agrico made an inventive change. By shifting the orientation of the sword without altering the position of the hand, the painter directs the viewer's attention to the gilded hilt and to the scabbard of the rapier that runs parallel to the vambrance, which is this part of the armor inviting the spectator to see the weapon almost as the extension of the captain's mighty forearm. El Greco's intention was not only to honor Vincenzo Anastasi and evoke his military achievements, but also to display his own invention through the depiction of the sitter in armor. It is evident, however, that he did not succeed in gaining favor from important personages through his innovative portrait as he left Rome for Spain the following year in 1576. In concluding the discussion, it is perhaps worth noting that one of the first known works executed by the hand of El Greco is the St. Luke painting the Virgin. Although on the surface it is a religious work based on 14th century icons, it betrays the painter's ideas and portraiture, which was 
to be further developed in Italy and Spain. Following the period of iconoclasm, St. Luke was revered as the first painter to have depicted the appearance of the Virgin. Subsequently, he was taken by the painters as their patron saint, and the iconography of St. Luke painting the Virgin was often used by painters to show their self-awareness and to argue for the nobility of their profession. That the evangelist was a painter and that he painted the holy image of the Virgin Mary offered a powerful justification in favor of the artist's claim. At the same time, it sheds light on the significance of portraiture. After all, it was a portrait that St. Luke painted. This suggests that there is a fundamental affinity between the icon and the portrait. In this sense, it was perhaps very natural for Egreco, the icon painter from the Byzantine world, to have had a keen interest in the concept and practice of portraiture. Although it can be said that Egreco's concentration on portraiture during his stay in Rome was motivated primarily by practical considerations, El Greco showed his intellectual prowess and aesthetic judgment in this genre. In fact, El Greco's portraits in Spain demonstrated, demonstrate that he continued to exploit the practical functions of portraits as a mean, means to gain larger commissions, and at the same time carried on to experiment with his ideas on portraiture, not only in the independent portraits, but also in the images of the saints and apostles. In this sense, El Greco's Roman period was a crucial stage in his later development as a, por- as a portraitist in both, as an ambitious portraitist in both worldly and artistic terms, who pushed the boundary, boundaries of portraiture, perhaps the most conservative genre of art. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.